This week, we're in chapter 2 of John, and hopefully we'll actually get through chapter 2. Unless um, everybody complains that I'm going too long. <laughs> so, um, yeah, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this uh, day. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. And we pray that you'll bless us as we get into your word. Speak to us, we pray, and help us to discern um, all the, the truth you have in here for us and help us to apply it to our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the purpose of the Gospel of John is twofold, to convince the skeptic and to encourage us as disciples to experience greater life and intimacy and love in our relationship with God. And the key verse is John twenty thirty one, which says, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So let's just jump straight into chapter 2. We're going to read the entire chapter so you get the context. So, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, with the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us, since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, 
and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So there's a lot in this, in um, John chapter 2. There's two main themes, there's joy in the wedding and judgment at the temple. But we'll get into that later. So we'll just um, start off in verse 1. It says, And the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, in Jesus' day, Jewish wedding celebrations lasted for one week or seven days, and the relatives and friends would stay in the home of the bride and bridegroom. Sort of a honeymoon, family reunion type thing. Party, wedding, wedding party, you're all, all into one. And during the seven-day celebration, the bride would be tucked away in a secluded part of the house and would not be seen by anyone but her groom. At the end of the week, she would emerge with great fanfare and celebration. This is fascinating as it relates to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Because when the rapture takes place, we, the bride of Christ, the church, will be carried away into heaven for seven years, just as a Jewish bride was in seclusion or hidden away with her groom for seven days, we will be tucked away in intimacy with our Lord Jesus Christ, away from the tribulation that will be unleashed upon the earth. So verse 2, Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now, there's two points I want to make concerning this verse. Firstly, this is the first of many stories suggesting that Jesus was always welcome among those having a, a good time. Um, Jesus didn't spoil the good time, but he didn't go overboard either. It's easy to, easy to see Christianity as a set of rules that tell us what we can't do anymore, a very restricting kind of religion. And yes, there are things we shouldn't do anymore, like get drunk, have sex outside of marriage, swear, still lie, be selfish, etc., And it's for good reason that God doesn't want us to do those things anymore because sin is wrong because it hurts. And um, it only causes us hurt and pain and sorrow and sadness, both to us and those around us. However, there are still many things that we can do with moderation and with the goal of reaching the lost. It's interesting to me that when Jesus was around sinners at their dinner parties or houses, he always influenced the conversation to be about the gospel and the kingdom of God. There are a number of conversations recorded in the gospels that took place while Jesus was in the company of sinners, even in their homes. And uh, here's one here in Luke. Luke chapter 19, verses 5 to 10. It says, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek 
and to save that which was lost. It's been said that it's good for the boat to be in the water, but not the water to be in the boat. We are to be in the world, but not of it, meaning that we are to influence the world, but not allow the world to influence us. And I think it's very important that once we recognize that we're being influenced by the world, then we need to get out. We need to leave that situation. Jesus um, always sets the example for us. And one thing, one more thing here, be aware that there will be those people who don't understand us and our motives and will condemn us and criticize us for our apparently evil behavior. And they'll say, oh, you shouldn't be hanging around with those people or doing those things. But just um, do what God calls you to do for the sake of the kingdom. Um, consider what the people of the Jesus day said about Jesus in Matthew eleven eighteen to 19. It says, For John didn't spend his time eating and drinking, and you say he is possessed by a demon. The Son of Man, Jesus, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. But wisdom is shown to be right by its results. Jesus hung out with people and went to places where the religious people didn't approve. However, if you go fishing, you go to where the fish are. In the same way, we need to go to where the sinners or the unsaved are in order to reach them. We need to get out of our churches and and into the streets and homes of unbelievers as the Lord leads us. Don't expect the lost to come wandering into our churches. Now the second main point in this verse is that Jesus going to this wedding is like his stamp of approval upon all aspects of the institution of marriage, civil, legal, and religious. It's really important that we follow God's guidelines and in this, in our culture, because a strong family makes a strong nation and a strong church, for that matter. There is more commitment in a couple who is married than in a couple who are not married. So those who are just living together are much more likely to leave each other than those who have been married. verse 3 and when they ran out of wine now this is significant in their culture i've got a couple of quotes the first one's from a guy called tenny to fail in providing adequately for the guests would involve social disgrace in the closely knit communities of jesus day such an error would never be forgotten and would haunt the newly married couple all their lives another quote from boyce additionally Wine was a rabbinical symbol of joy. Therefore, to run out of wine would almost have been the equivalent of admitting that neither the guests nor the bride and groom were happy. So, it's really important that you don't run out of wine. The mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now, some suggest that Mary's concern about the, the running out of wine is that she was the hostess at this wedding. And she could have been, it could have been John's wedding, John the Baptist, since uh, Mary was Elizabeth's relative. And you can find that in Luke 136. 
And Mary turns to her son for help. But that may not be the case. That's just a, a speculation. But there's another reason why Mary might be asking Jesus to provide wine. She might have been seeking a restoration of her reputation. You remember that as a young woman, probably only 14 or 15 years old, years old Mary had become miraculous, miraculously pregnant by the Spirit of God. She was highly favoured and blessed among women. But she was also, I believe, the subject of much speculation and slander, raised eyebrows and wagging tongues. In uh, John 8.41, the Pharisees said to Jesus, We're not born of fornication, and that implying that he had been. So the the, the saying in around Jesus' hometown was that he was um, born out of wedlock. And that's the um, the stigma that Mary had to put up with. So maybe she's thinking, oh, if they can see who Jesus really is, maybe they'll believe the truth about me that it was a, a miraculous birth. And verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Now, woman, what does this word mean? Well, it's G-U-N-E, June, um, the Greek word translated woman it's a term of respect but not warmth so this is really a gentle rebuke to mary it sounds like a cold response on jesus part to his long-suffering and gentle mother yet jesus wants to emphasize that there was a different relationship with her now and he says and the reason for this is the next part of verse 4 my hour has not yet come now, this is a really important term that we're going to see seven more times as we go through the Gospel of John. What does it mean? What is Jesus referring to when he says, my hour has not yet come? Or what's, what is the hour? Well, in John 17, verse 1, he prayed, Father, the hour is come or has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may also glorify you. So what is the hour? The hour is the time of Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. The hour is the time of the irrefutable declaration of who he was, of the undeniable proof of his deity. The hour is when his earthly ministry would be finished, his appointed mission completed, and his Father fully glorified. So we're talking about the cross and the resurrection. So Jesus knows how Mary has been, what what she's been suffering, what, what people have been saying about her. But he's basically saying it's not the time to rectify everything. Not quite yet. Now, what does this mean to us? What's the application for us? Well, oftentimes we ask the Lord to do something that will get us off the hook or make us look a bit better. We ask him to do something that will smooth our road or lighten our load. Like Mary's, our request might sound very noble, very generous, very altruistic, but in reality, they're self-centered because we're doing it for ourselves. And in such cases, Jesus might whisper in our hearts, as he did to Mary, what does your concern have to do with me? This is not the hour. This is not the time. This is not the place. The problem will be solved. Your reputation will be salvaged. The provision will be made. The healing will be enjoyed. 
but not yet. My hour has not yet come. Now, I just want to go through a story in the Bible where this is um, quite clear, and it's Daniel. You might remember that Daniel had a, a place of tremendous power and prominence and authority in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And then when he was about 65 years old, Nabonidus, Nabonidus came into power and Daniel was removed from office. And then for 20 years, Daniel is not seen in the story, in the narrative. But then the day came when Belshazzar called for him to interpret the mysterious writing on the wall. That's Daniel 5.13. And when Cyrus seized control of the kingdom, just after that, because uh, that writing on the wall was basically um, saying, your time's up, your kingdom is going to be taken from you. Uh, When Cyrus seized control of the kingdom, they defeated Babylon, uh, the Babylonians. Daniel was placed, once again, in a position of prominence. So, for 20 years, Daniel was neither used in ministry nor given a position of responsibility, as far as we know in the scriptures. Yet Daniel, being a man of integrity, did what we must do. He remained ready. So, people, we need to be like Daniel, like Jesus. Don't say, I've been walking with the Lord for five years and nothing's happening. So I think I'll just go to the movies, join Ultimate Frisbee, play chess, and take up bird watching. <laughs> it's time, it's it's our job, and my my job and your job, to be ready to walk with the Lord, to spend time in the presence of the Lord, and to learn more about the Lord, so that when your or my Belshazzar says, what does this mean? Like Daniel, we can say, I can tell you, because for the last 20 years, I've been in touch with God. For 20 years, I've been in a place of prayer. For 20 years, I've been close to the Lord. So, uh, are you in prayer? Are you studying the Word? Are you loving the Lord? Are you ready? And as Jesus says in the John chapter 1, what are you seeking? Are we still seeking first the kingdom of God? A relationship with Him? In a certain moment, your hour will come. Your time will arrive. A significant task A life-changing opportunity will arise, and then it will be too late to prepare. So here's an example. If you go to um, Matthew 17, you got Jesus going up to the Mount of Transfiguration. And while he was there, a man brings his epileptic son to the disciples, the other nine disciples, but they couldn't help him. Jesus comes down from the mountain and meets them and casts out the demon within the boy. And the disciples ask, well, why couldn't we do that? And Jesus replied, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, if it takes prayer and fasting to cast out this kind of demon, how were we to know that we would have that kind of demon come across our path today? The disciples may have wondered. But I believe Jesus was implying that because they wouldn't know when opportunities to minister would come their way, they should have been living a life of continual prayer and fasting because we don't know when these situations are going to come. Now, this is speculation, but it's interesting. Why weren't the disciples praying? Here's a suggestion. Think of how you would feel if Jesus only took three of the disciples 
and you're feeling all left out. Peter, James and John, they're the lucky ones. They get to go with Jesus. They're the inner circle. It's always Peter, James and John. They get to go at the mountain. They're in the inner circle. But what about us? We never get to do anything. And maybe that was why they weren't interceding. They weren't praying. They weren't ready. Their hearts weren't right. And when their time did come, they weren't ready. They weren't prayed up. They hadn't prepared their hearts to seek first the kingdom of God. Their focus was now on themselves and not on God. And today, there's many who say, the Lord never uses me, the church never calls on me, but when the opportunity arises before them, they are either unable to meet it or are completely unaware of it because they're not listening. So saints, our responsibility in ministry is to be ready and then to rest. Just wait for God to to, um, use us. So study the scripture and grow in intimacy in prayer. Worship the Lord. Get to know him all the more. Then just rest, saying, Lord, when the hour comes in which you want to use me to do something for your glory, I'm ready. We need to remember that we won't be transformed until we recognize that he's the master and we're not. He's the king, we're the subject. He's the boss, we're the servant. Our job is not to order him or even to make suggestions to him. Your place is to be ready for him and to rest in him. So verse 5, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, these are the last words that Mary speaks that are recorded in Scripture. And what what does it say? Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, that's really, really good advice. Mary is not acting as a mediator or liaison for Jesus. Now, there are those who believe that they need to go through Mary to have their prayers heard or gain influence in heaven. But these people have not studied carefully their relationship between Jesus and his mother. She didn't carry a whole lot of weight with him. Yes, he loved her and cared for her even when he was on the cross, but he was neither influenced by her nor did he take orders from her. When it was told him that Jesus' mother wanted to see him, Jesus said, Who is this? This is when he was in that room and that house where it was full of people and no one can get in or out. Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? They who hear the word of God are my mother and my brothers. And that's Luke 8.21. And later in Acts 1, we see Mary with the other disciples praying in the upper room. She's not leading the meeting. She's not in a place of honor or prominence. She's just one of them. There is one mediator between God and man, not Mary or anyone else, but the man, Christ Jesus. And that's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. It's been said that we pray to the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. All right, verse 6. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. Wow. Would you be willing to do that? Would you be willing to risk your reputation? Here, here, Master, 
taste this water. <laughs> I wonder how this water tastes. I wonder what they were thinking. So for us who seek to serve Jesus to a greater degree, there are three important characteristics of the servants that we can learn in this story. So the first is obedience. The servants didn't argue with Jesus or ask questions of him. They simply did what he asked them to do. The second characteristic or lesson that we can learn is exuberance or enthusiasm. Serve with enthusiasm. The servants filled huge 20-gallon vessels to the brim, even though they had no idea what would happen next. That's a lot of water to cart. There was nothing half-hearted about these guys. The third is patience. Jesus didn't say, and this is related to faith, Jesus didn't say, okay, servants, huddle up, here's a plan. See those big water pots over there? I want you guys to fill them with water. Then as you begin to pour them out and serve them to the governor, a miracle will take place and the water will turn into wine. John will write about it in the second chapter of his gospel and you guys will be famous. (laughs) No, he didn't have a meeting and told them that. Jesus only told them what to do one step at a time. First, they were to fill the water pots. After they had done that, he then instructed them to draw water out and take it to the governor. The miracle occurred only as they faithfully followed each step. Now, quite often, I know that I feel this way sometimes, maybe you do too, we want to know where all this is going. Lord, let me know where I'll be next month, next year, and three years from now. Lay it out clearly, Lord, and then I'll go for it. (laughs) But God doesn't work like that. He doesn't work in that way. He unfolds his plan for us the same way he did for the servants at the wedding, one step at a time. And the point where we stop obeying is the point where that stops happening. Now, as I was saying before, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. This took faith on behalf of the servants. Imagine how angry the master of the feast would have been if they brought him water to taste. Yet in faith, they obeyed the word of Jesus. So, yeah, just think about that. Verse 9. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. Now, today, this story is really well known. Many believers and unbelievers know this story. At one time, though, at this time, the only ones who knew what had happened were the lowliest people in attendance at the wedding, the servants. No one else knew where the wine had come from. There were no oohs and ahs as the wine was poured. There, was, there were no glances of recognition toward Jesus. There was not a sudden rush of people to Jesus' side. There were only some dropped jaws and wide eyes on the faces of some tired servants. This first public miracle of Jesus was similar to his first appearance on earth, where only a few shepherds were aware of what had happened. So there's going to be times later in his ministry when he would demonstrate his deity with bold and awesome authority. But on this particular day in Cana, he chose to reveal himself only to some humble, obedient servants. It just shows us what Jesus' character is like. He's very humble and lowly, and that's the kind of people he he communicates to the humble and the lowly verse 9 uh, continued uh, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him every man at the beginning sets out the good wine 
and when the guests have drunk well, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. So, here we go. There's nothing wrong with drinking. Jesus made lots of wine, they all got drunk. Not quite. There's been many who have used this story as a justification for drinking alcohol. Jesus made wine, Jesus drank wine, so don't talk to me about drinking, they insist. However, if your argument is sincerely based upon the example of Jesus, you will never drink wine again. Why? Because in Luke 22.18, Jesus says, He will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. So, if you're going to follow Jesus' example to a T, you're not going to drink wine until the kingdom of God has come, physically. Now, one thing that people overlook is that uh, the concentration of alcohol or the alcohol content in wine back then was most likely, very likely, a lot lower than in today's wine. Now, the debate does still rage. Was Jesus drinking fermented wine or just grape juice? I don't think it could be completely proved one way or another, but to me, it sounds like he did create fermented wine. So, however, just thinking about this, moderation is the key here. I'm tired of seeing the damage alcohol inflicts on our children, our families, and our society as a whole. There's so many families, so many children who are beaten and abused and, and left with nothing to eat, sometimes nothing to wear, because their parents spend all their money on drink. And then uh, uh, most of the time they're drunk. No one takes their first drink thinking that they're going to beat their kids. They're going to cause their car to be repossessed. They're going to, you know, they're going to waste their, they're going to lose their job. No one does that. They think they're going to be careful. They think they're going to remain in control. But the fact is that millions of alcoholics proves otherwise. Now, Solomon says it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of the afflicted. So if we want to be good leaders, we need to stay away from alcohol because it will short-circuit our thinking process. It will um, it'll damage our brains as well, but it'll, uh, what's the word for it? It'll, um, our ability to think rationally and clearly is affected and we can make some really bad choices. On top of that, there's the permanent brain damage and liver damage. So stay away from alcohol is my advice in this culture. Um, the Verse 11, this beginning of signs Jesus did. So, Jesus represents grace. Moses represents the law. So this first public miracle of Jesus, the, the grace bringer, and we'll compare that with the miracle, first miracle of Moses, the lawgiver. Moses turned the water of the Nile into blood, which speaks of judgment. Jesus turned the water at the wedding into wine, which speaks of joy. So, I believe that if we approach the word legalistically, it will become like the Nile. You'll bloody yourself and everyone around you. But if you look for Jesus in the water of the word, you will find the wine of joy producing such hilarity within you that people will be drawn to you because of the joy that is in you. 
verse 11, the second part, in Cana of Galilee and ministered and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So our Lord's first public miracle took place at a marriage ceremony. And I believe that is because daily miracles are essential to our marriages. So this is an application for us today. In the brief account of the miracle at Cana, a beautiful picture develops that helps us to understand how the Lord can take a marriage that seems washed up or watered down and turn it into something sparkly, bubbly and joyful. Marriage should not be simply workable like water. It should be wonderful like wine. And I think, and it's my experience, that we often settle for so little when the Lord wants to bless us so much. So often we're willing to accept a, a marriage where, you know, okay, we'll do. But God has something better for us in our marriages. God has chosen marriage to be the illustration or the, the picture by which the unbelieving world can see the beautiful relationship between believers and Him. So how does this happen? Here's a, uh, an application for us. Stone vessels were filled to the brim with water. Servants drew out the water and the water became wine. Paul declares that we are earthen vessels. So like 2 Corinthians 4.7. So we are the vessels. Therefore I am, I am to allow the word of God to fill me to the brim. Then I am to make the effort and take the time to draw water from what has, been, from what has filled me in order to serve my wife Marissa. She, on the other hand, is to allow the word of God to fill her to the brim in order that she might serve me. And as we do this, we find ourselves in Cana, where the water of the word is transformed into the wine of joy. We can only love each other as we love the Lord. Verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother. So, here we go. His mother is still at her son's side. The rebuke that we saw before it didn't stop her from following him. It probably brought them even closer. And the message for us is that we do not despise the chastening or the rebuke of the Lord because it's meant to draw us closer to him. And verse 12 again. His brothers and his disciples and they did not stay there many days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Now, Passover was linked with another feast that took place seven days later, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. During the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Jews had to make sure that absolutely no leaven was present in their homes. They searched every corner, every cupboard, and every cooking utensil to rid the homes of every trace of leaven, the symbol of sin. Now, in the following account, we will see Jesus typifying or bringing to life this Old Testament picture as he cleanses his own father's house from the evil and sin within it. Continuing in verse 13, And Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. So, in front of the temple were four courtyards, if you can imagine this, separated by four doors leading from one to the other. So the first courtyard, the most outer one, the one that's furthest away from the temple, is called the Court of the Gentiles. And everybody could go into this court, whether you be Jew or Gentile, male or female. Now the next court was the Court of the Israelites, or the Court of the Jews. So 
And if you were Jewish, you can go into this court, male or female. But if you were Gentile, you couldn't. And if you did, you would die. The penalty was death. The third courtyard was the court of men. So only the Jewish males were the ones allowed access to this court. And the last court, the fourth one, was adjoining the temple. It adjoined the temple itself, and it was called the court of priests. And that's because only priests were allowed in the fourth court. Now, it was in this first courtyard, the court of Gentiles, where the oxen, sheep, and doves were sold, and the money was changed. Why? Well, because the priests were filled with greed and covetousness. Now, what is coveting? It's simply wanting more of that which we already have enough of. These Jewish pseudo-religious leaders wanted more money to increase their own wealth. So, what happened was, the people would bring their oxen, their sheep, or doves to the temple to make a sacrifice. But the priests would inspect those animals and say, Oh, you know what? This lamb has a mole. Or this lamb has a... One, maybe one leg's a little bit longer than the other. Or maybe it's only a millimeter, but yeah, I can tell that one's a little bit longer, so no, we're not going to accept this. Whatever microscopic flaw or blemish they might find, they would say that, no, this, this sacrifice, this animal is not fit for sacrifice. So worshippers were then instructed to purchase pre-approved animals from the stalls in the courtyard. Now, the prices for the pre-approved or pure animals were exorbitant, and so the priests made a killing off the worshippers. So I imagine, if I put myself in their shoes, that the worshippers had a bitter taste in their mouth as they had their money ripped off them by these so-called spiritual leaders. Now, unfortunately, the same thing happens in many churches today. It's not uncommon, and I heard it just the other day, to hear the reason from an unbeliever for not going to church being that all the church wants is my money. I'm not going back there. So the money changers employed a similar tactic when foreigners came to the temple to pay their temple tax and to make offering. Their money was declared unfit or was not accepted due to the image of Caesar or other foreign deity inscribed upon it. The money changers would then exchange foreign currency for shekels, that's a temple currency, at a cost of up to 10 times the normal exchange rate. So, wouldn't you feel ripped off? <laughs> you kidding? The exchange rate is 10 times more than what it should be? <clears throat> Jesus entered this horrific scene, this, you know, people buying and selling, people getting ripped off left, right and center. And and he was not happy. So in the court of the Gentiles, the very place where the world should have been introduced to the true and living God, the priests were fleecing his flock instead of feeding them. They were driving the people away from God. So what did Jesus do? In verse 15 it says, when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the money, the, sorry, yeah, the changers' money and overturned the tables. So here the story is quite a contrast to what happened at the wedding. 
at the wedding, Jesus sat at the table. Here, he's throwing tables or tipping up tables. In Cana, his work, he worked quietly and privately. Here, he's reacting conspicuously and publicly. At the wedding feast, the emphasis was on joy. Here, the end result is judgment. But I think these two stories, these two accounts are here for together for a reason. Both deal with tables, and interestingly, I believe, both deal with Jesus desiring to bring joy. Consider this. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.19 And there can be things in our lives, in our temples, that are ripping us off, just as surely as a priest and money changers ripped people off in Jesus' day. So, if I am going to have joy then the Lord wants to come into my life and drive out the sin that is ripping me off, that is stealing my joy, that is hindering my relationship with Him. Joy and judgment in so joy and judgment walk hand in hand. For without joy, judgment would be unbearable, but without judgment, sin would run rampant, and there wouldn't be any joy. Yes, there is pleasure in sin for a season, but it was followed by destruction. That's Hebrews eleven twenty five. Therefore, the Lord lovingly says to you and me, I want to go through your life, overturn the tables, and drive out the cattle so you won't be ripped off from what I want to do in and through you. And he said to those who sold doves, in verse 16, take these things away. So, from this we can understand that Even in his righteous anger, Jesus was totally in control. He was not running wildly through the temple courtyard, driving out the oxen and throwing over tables in a blind rage. Because if he was, he would have knocked the cages of doves to the ground and they would have been killed. But Jesus, because he doesn't want to hurt the doves, he just speaks to the people selling doves and says, would you guys please take these out? And then he continued to crack the whip, scourge, and, and overturn the other tables. So in Ephesians 4.26, Paul says, Be angry and do not sin. Okay, Or be angry and sin not. Jesus provides a perfect example of what this means. Although he acted with great strength and firmness, he was never out of control. Sometimes Jesus communicates differently to each of us. Sometimes he comes with his word. And sometimes he comes with his might, but he always comes in righteousness. Uh, second part of verse 16 says, Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And here, Jesus referred to the temple as my father's house. And this is a declaration of his deity. God is he's making the father, um, God the father, his father. Verse 17, Then his disciples remembered that it was written, now, John records three times when Jesus' disciples remembered either something in Scripture or something Jesus said. And you find that in chapter 2, verse 17, chapter 2, verse 22, and chapter 12, verse 16. So people say, oh, they were just uneducated men. Well, it's really clear they had the word hidden in their hearts. And that's Psalm 119.11. Hide God's word in your heart. And what did they remember? Well, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Where do you find that? Well, that's Psalm 69 verse 9. That's what they remembered. 
and the disciples suddenly realized Jesus' passion for the physical temple. So, zeal for your house or zeal for your temple has eaten me up. So too, Jesus is zealous and passionate about his spiritual temple. And who's that? What is it? What's us? Now, we are not his temple only individually, that's 1 Corinthians 6.19, but also corporately, that is, as a body of believers, that's 1 Peter 2.5. And as his corporate temple, we as a church exist for three reasons. Have you ever thought about why the church exists? What the reasons are that the church exists? Well, there's probably more than these three, but here's three. The first reason the church exists is for exaltation. For worshipping, exalting, and extolling the Lord. Why? Because all things were made by Him and for Him. Colossians 1.16 Including the church. Therefore, the church exists for the Lord's pleasure. That's Revelation 4.11 The second reason the church exists is for edification. The church exists to edify the saints, to build them up, to bring them into maturity, into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I'd like to read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, uh, actually 12 to 15 to you. It says, Their responsibility, the pastor, is to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son, that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies. So clever, they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ who is ahead of his body, the church. So, how are we built up to be the, into the full measure of Christ? Well, by seeing Jesus through the study of the Scriptures. And I'm convinced that the greatest single need in the church today, both in this country and internationally, is the straightforward teaching and study of the Word. Now, the third reason the church exists is for evangelization. Jesus said to them, go out into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. So the inevitable result of exaltation, of lifting up the Lord, and edification, the building up of the saints, will be evangelization. Why? Well, have you ever heard the phrase, healthy sheep naturally reproduce? If sheep are properly fed and tended, then the shepherd needs to make more room because many lambs will be born. If you're a farmer, you know that if the sheep are hungry, or the sheep are thirsty, or if the sheep are stressed, then the lambing rate goes right down. But if the sheep have everything they need, then the lambing rate is high. In Acts 6 verse 7, it declares that when the word increased, the number of disciples multiplied. So I'll say that again. When the word increased, the number of disciples multiplied. That is why the reason we meet together is not primarily for evangelism. Evangelism is the effect. Exaltation and edification are the cause. So the church in God's eyes is really, really important. He, he, it's his heart and he wants, he's zealous for his church. Verse 18. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Now, 
They didn't say, why are you doing this? Everybody there knew the temple needed cleansing because it was so corrupt. So no one asked Jesus why he did what he did. Rather, or instead, they asked who had given him the authority to do it and to give them a sign to prove it. Now, what's Jesus' response to asking for a sign? In verse 19 it says, Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So, the Greek word translated temple is naos, which was also used in reference to the Holy of Holies. That's the inner part of the temple where the Ark of the Covenant is, where the Shekinah glory was. I think, maybe, that Jesus physically pointed to himself when he made this declaration. Destroy this body, and in three days... I will raise it up. And that's exactly what he did at Calvary. Verse 20 and 21. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Now, a bit of um, trivia for you. Uh, History. Herod had begun renovation of the temple in the year 20 BC. Now, what we're reading about now took place in about 26 to 28. AD. So that's 46 years. 20 plus 26 is 46. So 46 to 48 years. And it's going to remain under construction until AD 64. This temple was huge and extremely impressive. And Josephus tells us that 18,000 men were employed on the project over the course of its renovation. So that's why the Jews thought he was crazy when he said he was going to rebuild the whole thing in only three days. So, verse 22. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, this is a third recorded instance in this chapter where the disciples remembered or believed. In verse 11, The water changed to wine, caused them to believe. In verse 17, the cleansing of the temple caused them to remember. But here in verse 22, the resurrection caused them both to remember and believe. Verse 23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Now, seeking signs, is that okay? Is that a good thing to do? It does happen in Scripture. Gideon sought a sign. But they can be overdone. There are those who seek miraculous proof that Jesus is real and that he loves them. Do we need a sign to know that to be true? They search for physical, material, or financial verification of his reality. But this is a flimsy, faulty faith built upon a sandbar foundation because... As we will see, Jesus is not committed to those who demand a sign. Why not? Well, I believe the problem with signs is that they're never enough. If you base your faith upon signs, you'll always be upset by the one that didn't happen, the prayer that wasn't answered, the healing that didn't come, the payment that didn't arrive. That is why, that is why our faith must be built and based not upon what Jesus does, but upon who he is. 
We love him for who he is, not for what he does for us. Now, who he is, is revealed in the word. And that's why Paul says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10.17 It's the word pointing to the person of Jesus Christ that produces genuine faith. Verse 24 and 25 But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. Now the word translated commit in verse 24 is the same word translated believe in verse 23. In other words, many believed Jesus when they saw the miracles, but he did not believe in them because he knew their hearts. Now, next week in chapter 3, we're going to learn about one man who was seeking Jesus for who he was, rather than what he, just for what he could do. Now, I'd like to spend just another five minutes um, look, having a, a, a look at um, verses 13 to 15. Um, there's an application here. I want to finish on. It fits in well with this chapter. So I'll start. I'll just read 13 to 15 again. Now when the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and the, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money, and overturned the tables. So, let's dig a little bit deeper as we talk about joy and judgment. I believe there's a direct connection between the joy he produced at the wedding and the judgment he pronounced at the temple. Joy and judgment to me are two sides of the same coin. They go hand in hand. Now, Jesus' anger, this judgment, why was Jesus angry? Well, there's four Cases where Jesus demonstrated righteous anger. The first is in Matthew 18, verse 6. Jesus used strong language to describe the punishment of anyone who caused a child to stumble. In Mark 10, 14, Jesus was much displeased when his disciples hindered little children from coming to him. In Mark 3, 5, Jesus looked with anger on the Pharisees who were eager to persecute him for healing on the Sabbath. And here in John 2, Jesus' anger is seen in the cleansing of the temple. Now, what is the common factor in all these things, in these four instances? Jesus is only angry or demonstrates anger that we know of in these four instances. What is the common thing, the common um, reason that, that caused Jesus to be angry? Well, I believe that Jesus' anger is directed toward those who put up barriers to prevent others from coming to him. So I believe Jesus' anger is directed toward those who put up barriers to prevent others from coming to him. We often think the Lord is angry with our watching TV or our imperfections or, or inconsistency. We think he is angry with us for not reading the word or for not praying enough. But in reality, what angers the heart of Jesus are those things that keep us and others from experiencing and enjoying the presence of God, which is where we experience his love. Traditions that say you can't be healed on the Sabbath or inspections that say your sacrifice is unacceptable. So individually and corporately, we can erect walls or barriers that discourage people from coming to the Lord. And this angers Jesus. And this is why 
scourge or whip in hand, he overturned the tables of the money changers in the temple. And that he why he scourges us as well. You see, if there are barriers, barricades, people or problems in your life that prevent you or others from enjoying him, he will scourge you or discipline you. And that's found in Hebrews 12 verse 6. Now, some of you might be saying, well, there are all kinds of barriers in my life, but I'm not being whipped. I'm not being disciplined. What that means, though, according to Hebrews 12.8, is that you are not truly a son or daughter of God. You may go to church, you may know all the, the lingo, you may know what to do and say, but if you're not being disciplined by the Lord, if, if you're not being drawn into a deeper relationship, then you are not His. So, how does the Lord discipline us? Well, it's made with a whip made from small cords. Now, I've had times in my life where I've done something with the wrong motive, like disciplining my kids with in anger sometimes, and the hurt that I see on their faces is enough to discipline me. God uses that to discipline me. I recognize I've hurt my own children or my own wife, and that is a discipline. God allows us to see the pain we caused to other people. It could be a traffic infringement. It might be a rebuke from a neighbor. It could be sickness or a setback. But if we're smart, we'll recognize even seemingly minor incidents as small cords or whips as discipline in the hand of the Lord and say, O oh Lord, please teach me, change me, remake me. I receive this right now as correction from you. Now, what gives Jesus the right to do this, to discipline us? It's not this whip in his hand, but the whip upon his back. In John 19 verse 1, we read of Pilate whipping Jesus, or ordering him to be whipped or scourged. Not with a scourge made of small cords, but with a flagellum, or a cat of nine tails, a special kind of whip. It has a handle about 12 inches in length, and... About 30 strips of leather were attached to this handle. On the end of these leather thongs were round metal balls and uh, along each piece of leather were pieces of glass and metal. Now, when Jesus was scourged or whipped, the large metal balls caused welts to rise. After about the sixth blow, the pieces of glass and metal tore into those large welts, reducing his back, his shoulders and legs to the consistency of mincemeat. Most often a man would die from this whipping. Jesus, however, absorbed the full 39 blows. Jesus took the beating in order to pay the price of my sin. He did it, he says, because I want the best for you and because I'm in love with you and I want to have a relationship with you. Now, he says, let me take the small cords, the irritations, the rebukes, the hard times, and use them to overturn anything in your temple that is ripping you off, anything that is placing a barricade between you and me. Now, what happens when I submit to his discipline? Well, joy returns, worship flows, intimacy is restored. So don't despise the the chastening of the Lord. Embrace it and say, Lord, as painful as this is now, I know you're doing a work in me to bring joy eventually. 
So when we get to heaven, we will finally see that all of the work the Lord did in us was necessary for us to enjoy eternity, where the focus will be on loving and worshipping God. Therefore, let us decide today that not only personally, but as a church corporately, we will not allow barriers or barricades of any kind to prevent people from coming into the presence of God. We must not allow traditions, political persuasions, or cultural expectations, or any other preferences to keep, to separate us. We must guard against anything that would keep people from worshipping with us. We must keep the way clear for the line of Judah to come in regularly to drive out the money changes, overturn the tables, and keep this temple free. I've got a couple of verses to read to finish off. One is Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So what was the joy that Jesus was looking forward to that was set before him? It was restored relationship with you and me. We are always on his mind. Did you realize that? The good thoughts that he has toward us cannot be counted. One of my verses that I love is uh, Psalm 40 verse 5, uh, the second half. And your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Just remember, God loves us so much. When Marissa and I were courting, we would send each other notes or letters. We still have these stored in a special box. They are precious to us. Did you know that God does the same? In Malachi 2.14 it says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on that on the day that I make them my jewels, literally special treasure, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Never lose sight of the fact that the whole Bible is a love story where God is seeking to restore a broken relationship with fallen man. It's amazing but true. What brings the Father, Son and Spirit the most joy is when they experience restored relationship with us humans. And since we are created in the image of God and created to be in relationship with God, the joy set before us is knowing Him as He knows us, loving Him as He loves us. Psalm 16.11 says, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, just to finish off, to experience the fullness of joy, we just need to be willing to endure the little scourges or whippings or disciplines which God uses to show us where we are not putting Him first, where there are things that are separating us from Him. If He endured so much to be in relationship with us, then shouldn't we be willing to endure some pain if it will help us draw closer to Him? Isn't that our ultimate goal in life? So, Father, I just thank you, Lord, for these scriptures. Lord, that you use, Lord, it's your desire to, to give us joy. And that joy is found in relationship with you. It's found in loving you. But there's many things that can distract us, that can detract from that. 
and you want to get rid of those things in our lives. And that process of getting rid of those things that keep us away from you can be painful because we hold on to those things quite tightly sometimes. Help us to let go of anything that will stop us from loving you with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. Lord, teach us, as Paul says in Ephesians, to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, to know the depth, the width, the height, the length of the love of God. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.